Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Quite frankly, I get most of my news from you. Joan Esposito. Y'all ready for this? On WCPT 820. Hello. Ooh, it is a big weekend. We are going into the final days before we go to the polls for some really exciting elections. So thank you for joining me this Friday, February 24th. We're going to focus on the mayor's race. Uh, we are going to focus on the one-year anniversary of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Uh, starting at 3.30 for the rest of the day, Professor Joel Ostro is going to join us. So if you, you know, um, Friday's... You know, the phone lines open up as soon as I get on the air. 773-763-9278. 773-763-WCPT. You can text me on that line. Our texting line is sponsored by Camp Kupagani. You can call me on that line. Let's, um, let's do what we usually do. Spend the first half of the show talking about pretty much whatever you want to talk about. Uh, and then starting at 3.30, we are going to be joined by Professor Joel Ostro, who is uh, an expert on Russia and joins us all the time to talk about what's going on in Ukraine. We are going to be talking about the one-year anniversary. There is uh, lots going on. There's a couple of things going on, actually, that we haven't had a chance to talk about before. It is going to be, um, it's going to be a really worthwhile discussion. So... Let's start with the news of the day, the news of the week. There is an election. Not only in Lake County, people are going to the polls, but also in the city of Chicago. Early voting is open. The actual election day is this coming Tuesday, February 28th. Lots of aldermanic races going to be decided And um, we have nine contenders who want to be the next mayor of the city of Chicago. I am going to do my regular show that day, probably uh, maybe talking to some of the people who are out and about at various campaign headquarters. And um, then Patty Vasquez is going to do her regular show. And then we are going to have our special election show. That is going to be starting at 7 o'clock. Patty, Santita Jackson, and I are going to be hosting and interviewing and talking to people from uh, 7 p.m. until 10 o'clock. We are going to both be talking to one another. We are also going to be talking to guests. We are going to be talking to people out in the field at various campaign headquarters It is going to be a lot of fun. Yeah, it's going to be a long night. And, you know, if you live in a place where the signal gets a little funky once the sun goes down, please just pull us up on your computer. Go to WCPT820.com. There is always a listen live button that you can push and you can hear us right over your computer. And if you happen to be out and about, you can also listen to us on your phone. You can uh, go to the TuneIn Radio app, and um, my phone, I don't, for some reason on my phone, I don't have to go through an app to listen to CPT. It's like somehow my phone 
has figured out how to find it. I wish I could tell you how that happened because I would share that technical information with you. But it's like magic. I um, you know, if I'm in the car, um, I'm generally listening to WCPT. So maybe I've just trained my devices where to go. Anyway, it is uh, this coming Tuesday, February 28th. I do my regular show. Patty does her regular show. And then uh, she and I and Santita Jackson are going to be uh, here for three hours, three hours, bringing you the political news as it unfolds. Now, here's something really interesting. Um, Marianne Ahern is one of, if not the best, I think, political reporter in the city. And uh, she has been talking to the Board of Elections, and they have warned her, <clears throat> look, the way things look right now, Paul Vallis is a lock to make it to the runoff. But behind Paul Vallis, Mayor Lightfoot, Chewy Garcia, and Brandon Johnson are pretty much in a dead heat to get that second slot. And I know what you're thinking, yes, every time there's been any kind of survey, there's a large number of people out there who say they're undecided. And if those undecideds all get on the same page and throw their weight to a particular candidate, maybe it'll be enough. But what the Board of Elections told Marianne Ahern, and she reported, was that we may not have the results about who is going to be the second person in the runoff? Possibly. We may not know that person possibly for two weeks. Two weeks. They're estimating right now, based on the numbers they see, that on Election Day there will probably still be at least 10% of the mail-in ballots that have yet to be counted. Remember, if you have a mail-in ballot, you can postmark it February 28th. Figure it'll get there a few days later. So they keep these races open until they have the ballots counted. And it is possible that there there's such a tight race for the number two spot that it might not be soundly, roundly, firmly decided for as long as two weeks after Election Day. So we've all got to just take a deep breath, as we have done before when this has happened, and we have to be patient. She gave the example of um, um, one of the pollsters that she was talking to is somebody who had actually run to be a a while back, had run to be a Cook County commissioner. And for seven days, he appeared to be in the lead. But after seven days, when more and more mail-in ballots were counted, he lost that election. So uh, this is a real interesting wrinkle to be announced by the Board of Elections at this point, that the... It is believed that Paul Vallis will come away with enough votes early enough to be declared as one of the people who will be in the runoff election. 
who he is running off against? Well, you know, what are you doing for the next couple of weeks? Let's let's see how this is going to this is going to track. February 28th, March, uh, March uh, looks like March 14th. March 14th. And the you know, we're the runoff is in April. So for those three candidates who may not know if they're in the runoff, I guess they're going to have to still keep campaigning. I mean, Right. I mean, they can't afford to just, you know, get on a plane to Cancun for two weeks and then come back and find out whether or not they're in the runoff and they're going to keep campaigning. Um, that's going to be really weird. If that's the way it unfolds and we see Chewy Garcia, Brandon Johnson and Mayor Lori Lightfoot campaigning and making speeches and appearances, not even knowing if they're actually in the race. Interesting, huh? It's going to be quirky. It is going to be very quirky. Okay, let's go to the phone lines. Jim is calling in from Chicago. Hey, Jim, thanks for calling in today. Hi, Joan. I was just thinking of a song, Who's Zooming Who? I was thinking of Who's Grooming Who? <laughs> oh, God. The, yeah, we've got the Federalist Society, who's clandestinely uh, doing our judicial uh, work for the Republic. And then you have the Heritage Foundation which sponsors every one of these 1,400 Republican radio stations. And then they have this obnoxious ad from Hillsdale College, which they promote on all the Republican stations. We start with Genesis. In the beginning, they were only Republicans. And then from the the apple of knowledge, you've got Democrats, the evil Democrats. But I mean, this is, but, but what you said this week was very important. The younger voters tended Democrats. So I give them all the credit in the world to see through all this stuff and vote their civic duty and whatever they think civically for all of us to do, do better in society and push civilization forward. Well, you know, Jim, you make a really interesting point because you and I are old enough to have seen how politics has changed and and has become so full of blatant lies that people don't even back away from uh, a shame seems to be a thing of the past but the the younger folks who are voting now this is what they've lived with their whole lives and yes i think you're right because of that i think that they do have a different attitude toward all the lies and all of the political shenanigans I think that they do and and likely will see through it. That's a really interesting observation. Oh, Joan, you have a great weekend. Thank you, dear. Thank you. Thank you, Jim. We have what I did is I pulled some clips. I did an interview with uh, the mayor yesterday. I've pulled that and I've pulled a couple of ads from um, some of her uh, <laughs> contenders in the election going to be sharing some of that sound with you. Paul Vallis um, has done a really interesting kind of a, it's like a final campaign ad where he sort of summarizes. And maybe he's able to do this because by all accounts, he is such a strong front runner. But uh, the ad, it's not an attack ad, really. It is, you know, hey, here, I, here am I. Here are all these people who think I'm great. I hope you think I'm great, too. Anyway, we're going to be sharing all of that sound. We are going to be 
taking more phone calls, and um, I'm going to be sharing some of the texts that we've been getting well, with you. We are going to talk politics, politics, politics. I'm opening it up, though, if there was some news story that really moved you this week that you want to look back at. That's okay, too. It's Friday. And uh, starting at 3.30 today, we're going to be joined by our good friend, Professor Joel Ostro. And we are going to be making an assessment of what is going on in Ukraine right now, what the future looks like, and what the country of Ukraine and its people have tolerated, have lived through for the past year. Going to be a really interesting day today. Uh, let's get to it. Let's take a break. We'll be back with more after this. Podcasts of Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, are available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud. Just search WCPT 820. The Devil's Advocates. For those who would, will flip around and find something, hell, what, what to be challenged, hear a different idea other than what right-wing uh, talk radio is giving you, there's a huge opportunity for the Devil's Advocates, for progressive talk, whatever, the truth, uh, because everyone, most people want the truth and sometimes the truth hurts but then you get over it then it's just normal the devil's advocates weeknights at seven on wcpt 820 chicago's progressive talk because facts matter you are listening to wcpt 820 this is joan esposito live local and progressive on wcpt 820 It is Friday, and every Friday we open up the phone lines. We talk to you about the news stories that you found most interesting. Uh, Let's go back to the phone lines then right now. Roosevelt is calling in. Roosevelt, thank you for joining the conversation today. Appreciate it. Thank you, Joan. Have a nice weekend. You too. I'm 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 sorry. I'm pulling my mask down. I (laughs) sound a little muffled there. Um. Yeah, I want to talk a little bit about Ukraine, Biden, Republican versus Democrats when it comes down to the defense. The idea that the Democrats are soft on defense is ridiculous. You know, one thing that nobody's brought up, I don't think they have, is the fact that when Bush was in there, remember, Georgia came down and it came, uh, it got in possession of, of, of Putin and Russia. Am I mistaken about that? You're testing my memory uh, beyond its capacity right now on that. Um, I can I can tell you that crime, uh, the Russians took over Crimea roughly about 14 years ago. Um, but I'm I don't know. Um, well, you know, we'll have to ask Joel Ostro about that. Okay. Maybe he would probably yeah. know. Well, let, let's just put it this way. Remember that famous quote that Bush said that he looked into his eyes and he saw. Oh, his God. Yeah. Remember that? Yeah. So he, took, he took a little bit. He was a little Trumpian to that, to that because he took the side of, uh, you know, keeping the peace at any cost. And I, I, I distinctly remember tanks going into Georgia. And the same thing that's happening to Ukraine was happening to the country of Georgia. Um, but let me, let me go beyond Georgia. So Biden goes to a country that's being attacked by Russia. I don't think that's ever happened. A president going to a country that's being, you know, and of course the Republicans spin it around saying that it was all, you know, a big stage. Uh, it was oh, well, you know, I mean, 
Joe Biden could start pooping gold bars and the Republicans would find a reason uh, to take him to task for it. Oh, look at all that money he's got. What did he do to earn it? He's just pooping it. You know, I mean, it's there is simply nothing that President Biden can do or say that won't be attacked. Um, And it's you know, there used to there used to be a time when, you know, politicians attacked things that were attackable. Now they just attack as a strategy. You did something. We're going to attack it. You said something. We're going to attack it. This is happening. You know, I mean, let's look at this train derailment in Ohio. The train derailed because of safety regulations that Donald Trump threw out. And and yet he goes to Ohio and he's like, oh, President Biden's really not doing you a lot of good, is he? And when he was asked about it, like, hey, but you did this. No, I didn't. No, I didn't. Well, yeah, he did. It's just unbelievable. And, Joan, I'm going to close it with this. And, you know, whenever anybody like that idiot uh, Taylor Green speaks out and says, uh, well, Biden, uh, he should be uh, he should be in uh, East Palatine, uh, you know, where the disaster was instead of Ukraine and all these conservatives, all these knuckleheads in, uh, in Congress saying. And, and every time they say that, you know, what comes to mind to me hmm. is I keep on th- I keep on thinking. St. Reagan must be spinning in his grave because he was, yeah, to them, he was the epitome of anti-Russia. So these guys. He was an old fashioned Republican. He was, he was, he was an old fashioned Republican, the kind of person that literally no longer exists. And I agree with you. I mean, they talk about Reagan literally like he is, uh, like he is uh, sanctified. And yet when they if you if you really confront them with some of the ideas Reagan had, some of the speeches Reagan made, they would probably if you didn't tell them it was Reagan, they'd be like, oh, well, that's clearly those are Democratic talking points, because the, through today's lens, Reagan almost looks like a Democrat. Right. And, and that's my point, Joan. He, who, here's my rhetorical to anybody out there. Who do you think Reagan will be uh, supporting? Uh, Putin? Yeah, right. President, uh, President Biden. Because here's the thing. It took a lot of guts for a man 80 years old. They say he's senile. He's got dementia. He's got all this. He went to Ukraine and they're, they're I know. And and while the Republicans are saying, you know, other presidents have visited war war zones, NBC foreign correspondent Richard Engel said, yeah, he's covered those visits and they were always made to American military bases where the commander in chief was very, very well protected. Never something like this where there's no U.S. troops, there's no U.S. presence and he's walking down streets um, where there are buildings that haven't been completely cleared and made safe. I mean, yeah, no, uh-uh. And you, remind, um, you gave me a memory, too, of, of Bush. Remember Mission mm-hmm. Complete? Or what was that? The banner that he had behind him when he was in that, uh, that base that we had? So that's, you know, I, I don't get it from the, from the, well, you know, everything is mm-hmm. anti-Biden. But, but that's my point. My point is, you guys are always anti-Russia. I mean, when it came down to... Uh, it used to know, be. It used to be, when it came down to Reagan. And then the Reagan was the, was the model, uh, like I said, was the, the, the representative of anti-Russia. And now, they're for Russia. 
Yep. Yes, indeed. So, yeah. That's all I got to say. Thank you very much. Thank you, Roosevelt. I appreciate the call. And uh, I know that uh, Lady B told me uh, Steve called while he was driving and he hung up. Uh, Steve was, you know, I talked to uh, Mayor Lori Lightfoot yesterday. And there were, I had a whole list of things that I wanted to ask her about. And we didn't get to everything. And Steve, I think, might be the person who texted in to me, you know, ask her about pensions. Well, you know, uh, pensions are worth talking about. Uh, I also didn't get a chance to ask her about this controversy where her campaign sent thousands of emails to Chicago, both public school students and Chicago college students, uh, telling them that if they worked on her campaign, they could get school credit. And uh, she originally attributed it to a staffer kind of gone rogue. But as the uh, reporters have dug into the story, there were a lot more emails sent over a much larger period of time. It doesn't appear that it's possible that it was the work of only one staffer. And um, I didn't get a chance to talk to her about that either. And, yeah, I understand if I didn't get a chance to touch on your topic that uh, that made a lot of people really frustrated. But here's what I've learned. I try to, when I'm talking to a politician... I try to ask questions that will, in and of themselves, break through campaign speak. Or if it's an obvious question, then try to word it in such a way that the that I elicit an answer that is something other than campaign rhetoric. So I really think when I look at my list of topics, when I look at my list of questions, I really try to pick and choose the ones that will pull the politician or the candidate, you know, out of their talking points mindset and try to get a more real conversation. So to those of you, trust me, we could have talked to Lori Lightfoot all day and I would not have run out of things to ask her about, but our time was limited and I was trying to... I was trying to break through the rhetoric and get to something real. So I apologize if I did not get to the news story or the important issue that you really wanted to hear about. Um, I did the best I could with the time I had. Um, let's take a break. We're going to take more calls and I'm going to share some sound with you from that interview and other things when we come back after this. Take Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive with you on the go by using the TuneIn app on your phone. Just search for WCPT 820. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT Willow Springs is powered by ComEd. See how ComEd is preparing for a clean energy future at ComEd.com slash clean energy. Now back to Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. It is Friday. Yes, you got through another week. Uh, And uh, we are building up to Tuesday where there's going to be a big election in Chicago. People in Lake County also going to the polls and a few other places that are going to be in the suburbs that are going to be voting on of various um, various measures and um, some like city council seats and things like that. 
the evening of the 28th, Patty Santita and I are going to be on the air in varying combinations from uh, 7 p.m. to 10 p.m. Please join us. Please join us. I, I think you will in, enjoy it. It is Friday. We open up the phone lines to anybody who wants to talk about any particular news story this week. Uh, Rose is calling in from Chicago. Hey, Rose, how are you? Joan, pretty good, pretty good. Yeah, my comment is on the topic of the George Santoses of the world, but ah. illustrious backstories and fake persona are almost superhuman. Mm-hmm. I, I read recently that there's a woman that they think did the same thing. But my comment is that if he was able to create this illustrious backstory and all these qualifications in order to get, even get the votes to get elected, that means I'm guessing he would have used that fake persona to even gather up enough signatures to even be on the ballot in the first place. So if I was a potential candidate, that wasn't able to get enough signatures to be on my particular ballot, but this person made things up even to be on the ballot, I'd be pretty pissed off if I was a potential candidate. You raise a very good point. I mean, the guy has lied about everything. Who's to say that his signatures were valid? I don't know if signatures can be retroactively challenged, uh, because and clearly, valid, not just that they're valid, but just kind of under false pretenses, like the <laughs> the votes were. You know, if you say, "Please sign my petition," whatever it's called, petition, whatever it is. Yeah, really. And you please, please sign my my petition. I'm going to give you a fake name, and nothing that I'm going to tell you about myself is real. But sign my petition, and because I want to run. Oh my goodness. So other people that, whether it's in Illinois or New York or anywhere across the country, that was not able to be on a ballot because they didn't have enough signatures, I'd be pretty pissed off if I was one of them. I just want yeah, to Yeah, absolutely. That's a really interesting point. You know, this um, George Santos is like an onion, and it just keeps getting peeled away more and more and more. And I have a funny feeling when we get to the middle, we're going to find nothing there. That's like he's not even real. That he's just gonna he's gonna poof and disappear before our very eyes. I don't know. Maybe I'm getting a little fanciful there. <laughs> exactly. Well, thanks for taking my call. Have a great weekend. Thank you, and thank you for that call. Um, let's go back to the phone lines. Ron is calling in from Chicago. Hello, Ron. How are you? Oh, pretty good. Um, all the uh, candidates for mayor, they all want to reduce crime, and uh, I have not heard any specifics how to deal with uh, street gangs and drug trafficking and guns coming to Chicago. Does anyone have a plan? You know, Brad, Brad Johnson said he had that uh, mental illness and poverty contribute to crime, but uh, he can only do so much about that. Well, in what specific issue? Because they all have plans. They all have plans with how they want to reform the police department, how they want to reallocate money or beef it up or hire more detectives or make sure, you know, there's already a ward where we're doing a pilot program where there are trained social workers and mental health professionals that are responding to calls 
that are not strictly police related. There's been a big question about that, whether there should be a police officer with them anyway, just in case things get violent. Um, but right now they're looking at that. So, yes, there is a million plans about a million things. Um, narrow it down and I'll try to sh- share with you what I've learned. Um, street gangs, uh, that I think that's still a problem uh, in Chicago. Yes, and um, for for that problem, probably the best solution I've heard, um, and this she's not the only one who has suggested this, but there are these people referred to as violence interrupters. These are oftentimes people who were members of these gangs, And as they grew older and got a little bit more mature, they left the gangs. But the gangs know them. They know they're not cops. And these are the people who live in the neighborhoods and know the stories. And when tensions start to build, you know, somebody has um, disrespected somebody else. And, you know, the word on the street is there's going to be retaliation. This is where a violence interrupter can step in talk to the parties involved and try to get whatever the problem is solved without it resulting in some kind of drive-by shooting. Sophia King um, talked about having violence interrupters funded by the city of Chicago to a much greater degree than, than is happening now and that these people would also be a really big part of her public safety plan. That's... Uh, and she's not the only one. I'm not going to say that Sophia King is the only one who wants to utilize violence interrupters in the neighborhoods to a greater degree than they're being utilized now. Um, but she and I did talk about that as being a part of her safety plan. And that, I think, as far as as far as gangs, that seems to me to be the smartest approach uh, to that particular problem. What do you think? Yeah, that's the uh, uh, good thing. And uh, does, doesn't the uh, police still have their uh, uh, anti-gang units, uh, I believe? Um, as far as I know, they do. Of course, as you no doubt have read about, there's a lot of controversy over the gang database. You know, there was this database. Anybody who was in a gang, who was had a family member who was in a gang, was affiliated with a gang, was at the scene of a crime that a gang perpetrated, you know, these people's names and, and information were put into this database, but it was shown, it has been shown repeatedly that there are lots of people who are in that database and, of course, then painted with that brush that they are somehow gang adjacent that don't deserve to be there. I mean, if there's a gang shooting and you happen to be standing on the corner, you know, that doesn't mean that you're a gang member. It doesn't mean you had anything to do with the shooting. And uh, so the database itself has been targeted as something that's just not useful, filled with a bunch of bad information, and frankly um, has some problems with who, what kinds of people and ethnicities they particularly target. It was supposed to be either reformed or thrown out, and uh, activists have been complaining that neither of those things have happened to their satisfaction. So, yeah, I do think... Um, there is still there is still a gang unit, and and sadly, even though people say it's not really fair or useful, there's still a gang database. It's like uh, guilt by association. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Thank you.
Thank you. Thank you for the call. Um, I want to, before we go to the next break, I told you I had, um, well, I have some sound Lady B put together from my interview with Lori Lightfoot yesterday. And uh, for, you know, you've heard Brandon Johnson in our commercial breaks uh, telling you why he thinks he should be the next mayor of the city of Chicago. And um, I'm going to share with you a couple of the campaign ads, one from Jesus Chuy Garcia, another from Paul Vallis. I'm going to try to uh, spread out, the, spread out the joy. Um, Paul Vallis has a new ad out. The Tribune reporters are saying that it is his final ad before people go to vote. It's only 30 seconds, but rather than attacking his challengers, he wants to remind people about the support he has and why he has gotten it. Listen to this. The Democrat who will put crime and your safety first, Paul Vallis. The Chicago Tribune has endorsed Paul Vallis, citing his nationally recognized expertise in city financing, policing, and public education. Alderman Brendan Riley said, we need a mayor like Paul Vallis who will put public safety first. Alderman Tom Tunney added, Paul Vallis has been a passionate LGBTQ ally for decades. As mayor, Paul will prioritize community safety each and every day. Paul Vallis, the Democrat who will put crime and your safety first. That's uh, this final ad being put out by uh, Paul Vallis, who has a number of other endorsements that aren't mentioned in that ad. But I thought it was really interesting. You know, I interviewed uh, Tom Tunney, who is retiring from the Chicago City Council. He has been there for a very long time. He was an early supporter of Lori Lightfoot. He was a head of the zoning committee, a not unimportant job. And clearly, you know, he, she considered him one of her insiders. And yet, and yet, over the term uh, that she has provided over the city of Chicago, he has become disillusioned with her to the point where when he announced that he was retiring from the city council, he also said that he was considering a run for mayor on his own, not only not supporting the person he supported last time around, but actually being so disgruntled that he considered trying to unseat her himself for a variety of reasons. He didn't do that, but he is endorsing the one candidate that is uh, probably the most unlike Lori Lightfoot in this uh, mayoral race. And, you know, one community that has pretty much stuck by the mayor, regardless of whether or not her other earlier supporters have abandoned her, uh, is the gay community. You know, uh, they were big supporters of her the first time around. And for the most part, it's not a monolith, but for the most part, they've stuck with her. Tom Tunney, one of the most prominent and well-respected gay politicians in Chicago. Breaking ranks. Kind of uh, kind of interesting, kind of a big deal. Let's take a break. We're going to come back with more calls and more politics right after this. WCPT 820, Chicago's Progressive Talk, where facts matter. Attention, everyone. Don't turn that dial. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, returns right now on WCPT 820. You know, I just played uh, what is considered uh, Mr. Paul Vallis's final campaign ad before people go to the polls 
So um, I want to I want to share with you when I was talking to uh, the mayor the other day, I told her that I thought it was really interesting when I was asking people who they were going to be voting for. And if if they were if they considered Paul Vallis too conservative, the answer those people gave me was very, very, very much the same. Not they didn't all pick the same candidate, but their reasoning was, well, I'm voting for X because I think they are the best person to defeat Paul Vallis, whether that's Chewy Garcia or Brandon Johnson or even the mayor herself. And I said that. You know, that's what I'm seeing. You know, Paul Vallis is seems to be far enough ahead to easily make the runoff. So he is um, he's making a lot of progressives very nervous. And so they are looking at the other field, not in terms of who they most like, but who they think is the best match against Paul Vallis. Eric Zorn, as I as I told you yesterday in his Picayune Sentinel Yesterday, he said quite plainly that on Tuesday he voted for Chewy Garcia, even though he berates Chewy Garcia, says he's humdrum and mealy mouthed and evasive when it comes to answering questions. But he thinks Chewy is the strongest candidate to go up against Paul Vallis. I asked the mayor about that yesterday, about whether or not uh, she would do well against Paul Vallis, and she took the opportunity. I've, I've, this was kind of long, so I've split it up. We're only going to hear the first part now. She took the opportunity not only to trash Paul Vallis, but then she segued into trashing Chewy Garcia. And later in the show, I will play you the, the next part of what she said, where she trashed Brandon Johnson. But right now, I'm only going to play, um, when I asked Lori Lightfoot if she was the best person to go up against Paul Vallis and how she segues into into also dragging Chewy Garcia uh, along, listen to this. The answer is clear. It's absolutely me. And there's no question whatsoever. I will beat Paul Vallis and send him into permanent retirement. There's no if, ands, or buts about it. You look at the, the ones that are... Um, in striking range. So um, Chewy Garcia, Chewy Garcia, unfortunately, is a great disappointment. He clearly decided after he lost in 2015, if you can't beat the machine, join the machine. He made a series of unsavory backroom deals with now disgraced, indicted former speaker Mike Madigan and defended him at a time when everybody knew that he was under federal indictment. Chewy Garcia would be the Trojan horse that brings cronyism and corruption to City Hall. He's knocking on the door. Don't answer. By the way, Mr. Garcia is going to um, be joining me this coming Monday. Uh, Sometimes things go awry at the last minute, but the plan right now is that Monday at 445, I will get a remarkably brief interview with Congressman Jesus Chuy Garcia. But, you know, uh, this isn't the first time the mayor has tried to tie Chuy Garcia with, you know, disgraced Illinois House Speaker Mike Madigan. And his response, you know, this is what happens when you've been in politics for a while. His response was, 
I wanted to get things done. Everybody knew that you didn't get anything done in Springfield unless Mike Madigan signed off on it. So, yeah, I worked with Mike Madigan basically because that was what you needed to do to accomplish anything, to get any anything done in Springfield. Mike Madigan had to be a part of it, and that is absolutely the truth. I mean, the stories I've heard about how he ruled with an iron hand, you know, there was, um, I know that there was a change to the law that um, someone I know was trying to get through Springfield, something that created like paperwork that was unnecessary. It was kind of a side uh, occurrence, side effect of a bill, and they wanted to get it altered. And they had um, support of the business community. They had support of the various legislators. They had a legislator who was going to write it up. They had they had all the votes to pass it. And at the very last second, it was struck from the agenda, and this person wanted to know why. And the state representative they were working with said, Mike Madigan said no. So no it is, and I'm not going to bring it up, and neither is anybody else. So, uh, Chewy Garcia, I think, you know, was it a valid criticism? Perhaps. But I thought he had a good answer. The best politicians, you know, when you are talking to them, the best politicians want you to talk about the various controversies surrounding them or their campaign because they want to be able to set the record straight. You know, they know that, you know, maybe the audience thinks they shouldn't have done X. So if Joan says, why did you do X? They can explain why they did X. Or maybe they've come to revisit it and don't think it was a good idea. And then they can apologize for having done X and say that they will do better in the future. The very best politicians welcome the toughest questions. It gives them the opportunity they want to try to bring new voters and new supporters into the fold. Let's go back to the phone lines. Uh, Jerry is calling in today to talk about the mayor's race. Jerry, thank you for being here today. Joe, how you doing? Good to, good to hear you. Hear thank you. Thank you. But let me say this right quickly. Uh, Paul Valdez didn't say anything negative about the mayor because he feels like he's in a comfortable position. Had he not right. been, he wouldn't be doing it. Every right. other candidate out there took a shot at the mayor. So it's not like she's doing anything wrong. That's what happens there. Oh, absolutely. And that's, you know, that's that's the whole thing about her. Um, you know, the front runner can afford to be magnanimous and gracious. <laughs> you know, the rest of them have to kind of claw into the spotlight. Exactly what's happening. But with the election coming up, I'm saying that I, like I said before, I supported uh, Tony Prettwinkle in the last one. But when the mayor got in, I looked at what she was doing. I said, "Well, she's done. She's doing as much or more than her predecessor, and she's doing." You know. So my thing is, anytime I like to give people the opportunity to stretch it out and do what they they're going to do. If you're yeah. not going to do that, I'm talking about Lori. But if you're not going to do that. You're talking about the four individuals that is running for office there. My, if if I'm not with uh, uh, Lori, 
I'm with that Brendan Johnson. This is the guy that makes more sense than any of them, any of them. And, um, but he, he gets attacked too. So that's just a part of what this whole thing is about. But Lori Lightfoot has done a pretty good job. Well, yeah, are they going to attack her to come after any kind of way they can? Uh, Paul Vallis has been a, a political hound for I don't know how long. And all the things that he's done, he's supported by Republicans. He has said, I saw it on my, with my own eyes that he would run as a Republican. Back here, they had a, an interview, and he's at it. And he's getting all this money from the Republicans, and he's got the endorsement of the uh, Fraternal Order Police. And there's one guy who, who is, is despised by African-Americans in the community, the, the uh, president of the uh, Union of the Police. He supports them, too. If all that's going on with Paul Valens, we don't need him. Because I'm not that I hate police. I love police. My nephew's a policeman. But you got some rotten people in there. Nobody wants to root them out. And this guy would not do it because I looked at a, uh, a situation last year. And his son was involved in a shooting, killed a, a young man. Three of them shot him to death. And I looked at the film, and they said, that the guy didn't have a gun. He was running away. But Paul Valdez said, well, my son did the right thing. Well, there was, in the interest of fairness, there was an investigation, an official investigation into that shooting. Paul Vallis's son was not the only cop on the scene. There were, I believe, two other cops, yeah, as well. And the uh, it was ruled a justifiable shooting. So, you know, I haven't dug into it. You know, I'm not in a position. But um, the people who are there, who are in a position to do it, as far as I know, there have been no lawsuits filed over that, that since it was ruled a justifiable shooting, everyone seems to have moved on. But also, too, the thing that the thing that bothers me about that is um, I don't believe, you know, I don't believe in holding a person responsible for either the good things or the bad things that their kids do, because I don't know if you've got kids, but after a certain point, you know, you just don't. And, you know, I mean, there have been other politicians locally whose children have gotten into real trouble. And I don't talk about it because it's not the politician. You know, I mean, their their kids are their kids. Uh, God love them. And some of them do better than others. And um so there were a lot of reasons why I didn't go into that particular issue. I'm sorry, go, I'm sorry, go ahead, Jerry. I couldn't hear you. Yeah, I'm saying I'm holding Paul for what he says. He said, my kid did the right thing. Look into it and find out what exactly happened. I looked at the video myself with my own eyes, and I saw them shoot this boy in the back, running away. So I, I, my eyes don't fool me. I saw just the other day, uh, the same thing with the police department when this young lady was attacked by this guy and she shot him and killed him. Well, I said, well, she had to do what she had to do. I don't give she's the police. But when I looked into what really happened, I said, what? Well, she shouldn't, she didn't have to kill this guy. She shot him twice. And he said, well, later, I don't want to die. And she said, you son and so son and shot him the third time. I'm like, what the oh. world? What in the world is going on? So look what, at Was this in Chicago? Brennan is the only one that said, I'm going to hold police responsible for what they do, too. But I'm going to clean up this this this, this mess because I'm with them. Anytime you got criminals out there, you got to do what you got to do. But don't go overboard and, and you know, act like uh, these people are not human. That's yeah. what I got a problem with. Yeah. So that's where I'm at with that. 
You must really love Willie Wilson, then. Wants to chase him down like a rabbit. Willie's a friend of mine, but I said, no, Willie, no. You know, you're way off base. Way off base, Willie. Yeah, and these guys that's running, I don't hate anybody, anything like that. They got to do what they got to do to try to win. But let's just be for real. If you got the Tribune supporting Valor, you got the Republicans pushing him, you got all this thing, and what? listen to what he says. That's what I got with, probably got with Valor. The mayor, sometimes she runs off the mouth when she needs to be quiet. You know. Jerry, I got to cut this short. We're past our time to break for. To break for news at the top of the hour, but thank you for calling in. Always, always fun to talk with you. We are going to uh, do the news, and then we are going to come back, and we are going to talk more politics. I'm going to play you a little bit more sound. We are then at 3.30 going to start talking about Ukraine. That and more right after this. Need a new social media account to follow for progressive politics? WCPT 820 is your best source for both progressive politics and programming. Give us a like on Facebook and a follow on both Twitter and Instagram. The Tom Hartman Radio Program provides all of the intelligence, information, and insight you'll need to win the water cooler wars. Weekdays 11 to 2 right here on WCPT 820. Chicago's progressive talk where facts matter. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. The reason that I listen to you from the infamous other side, you will call a spade a spade, and if it's indefensible, you will not defend it. And you know what? I can respect that. A WCPT 820. Hello, it is Friday, February 24th. In uh, what feels like a matter of hours, we will be uh, looking at the results from uh, this February 28th Election Day. There are suburban races. Uh, there are city of Chicago races. There are aldermanic races. And, of course, there is the race to be in the runoff in April to uh, be the second person who will, it looks like now, go up against Paul Vallis in April. And uh, the next mayor of the city of Chicago will be decided. I shared with you, I, I interviewed uh, Mayor Lori Lightfoot yesterday. And uh, I told her that a lot of the progressives whom I've spoken with here on the radio and off the radio as well, progressives really don't like Paul Vallis. And rather than telling me I'm going to vote for either Brandon Johnson or Chewy Garcia or Lori Lightfoot because I really like them, I'm hearing more and more often, well, I'm going to vote for them because I think they're the best person to go up against Paul Vallis and defeat him. And I asked the mayor about that, and she was like, it's absolutely me. I am absolutely the person to go up against Paul Vallis. And then she segued into uh, also her incredible disappointment in the candidate that is Chewy Garcia. And then uh, after that, she shifted into uh, her criticism of uh, Brandon Johnson. You know, it was kind of a it was kind of a full sweep. Uh, so let me share that with you. The mayor is telling us why Brandon Johnson was no good for the city of Chicago. I got 800 million reasons why Brandon Johnson should not get to a runoff or ever be mayor. Number one is 
$8 million is the amount of taxes that he wants to impose on top of hardworking men and women in the city. He wants to tax what he calls the rich, but his taxes would impact anybody making over $100,000 or more. And to put it into context, that's 34% of the teachers at CPS. That's untold numbers of police and fire and other city workers before we even get to the private sector. Uh, Brandon Johnson isn't better for Chicago. Brandon Johnson is bad for Chicago because he will drive businesses out of the city, and with them, they'll take those jobs. They'll drive people to the unemployment line, and I fear for a Brandon Johnson, if he's able to impose the level of taxes that he wants, he's going to drive the city into recession. It's very interesting. Um, the people who love Brandon Johnson love his fresh ideas, his uh, his energy, his intelligence. The people who are concerned about a Brandon Johnson candidacy are generally focused on his ties to the Chicago Teachers Union. That makes some people very uncomfortable. And um, when I uh, talked to Greg Hines from Crane's Chicago Business, there was actually Crane's Chicago Business went to the trouble to do an entire editorial on why Brandon Johnson's taxes that he's talking about imposing are a terrible idea. One of the ones that has gotten the most attention and drawn probably the most controversy is the idea of a head tax. That is, if you run a business in the city of Chicago, and let's say your business is doing really well, so you hire a bunch more employees because that business, your business is expanding, right? Well, what Brandon Johnson wants to do is something that used to exist. It was, um, it was a daily idea and, uh, it was gotten rid of during the Rahm Emanuel years, the head tax. Brandon Johnson wants to put some laws in that, um, if you hire more than say 50, New employees. Let's say your business has just gone gangbusters and you're going to hire 75 people. Well, he has set a threshold, and I don't know if it's 50. I'm using that as an example. So any employee over and above the 50 mark, you have to pay a tax simply for having that person work for you. That's what a head tax is. It's per head. So if the threshold is 50, you hire 75 employees you're going to be paying a head tax on 25 of those employees. It is an idea that the business community, as you might well imagine, just absolutely hates. And uh, when, yet when I asked Brandon Johnson about it and the criticism that has come with that, he, was, uh, he, he didn't back down. He didn't change his stance. As a matter of fact, he doubled down. He says, nope. It's not because, you know, the, the thing is, as, as Greg Hines said, you know, it's a business killer. Nobody is going to, you know, want to bring a booming business to the city of Chicago. If, let's face it, it's, it's a big company and, you know, they might be hiring a thousand new employees. Why would they want to pay a tax simply because there's a warm, living, breathing, living, breathing human being on their roster? Uh, the business community hates the idea of a head tax. Brandon Johnson is sticking by it. He thinks it is a good thing. He makes no apologies for it. So um, 
It's a it's a real interesting crop of candidates we have here. But that's why uh, Lori Lightfoot was uh, trashing Brandon Johnson. Chewy, she just, you know, she just thinks he's a disappointment. And she is, of course, she is, of course, the warrior who can take on Paul Vallis. Let's go back to the phone lines. Pam is calling in from Chicago. Go ahead, Pam. Uh, hi, Joan. I just want to say everybody uh, seems to think it's a foregone conclusion. And I guess based on whatever poll you look at, that Paul Ballas is going to be there. I am not so sure about that. But what it is disappointing is that probably the large population of white people in the in the city will support Ballas. And that deserves me tremendously, particularly his close association with um, candidate. I mean, uh, people like John Cantazaro form, I think, FOP uh, president, and the current FOP, which uh, tends to be largely against any any type of reform that will help protect uh, black people by way of um, uh, preventing police brutality or just having racist officers on the force. Uh, right now, it was just revealed you had many officers, uh, I think at least 12, who now they say have affiliations to the Oath Keepers and Proud Boys, and so... Uh, I'm looking for somebody who's going to get in City Hall and address that issue. For me, that person is Brandon Johnson. And here's what I know. Uh, The city is going to need revenue. Nobody else is putting forth a plan about revenue. So what are they going to do, cut the social programs or do what they always do, Joan, raise property taxes later, but they won't tell you while they're campaigning. Uh And lastly, I'm going to say this about businesses. I I find these businesses... uh, (laughs) their position is despicable because here's what I saw when Brandon Johnson went to the city club, he told everybody in that room, look, we are dealing with a situation where we have a tale of two cities, one that works for the prosperous, the business community, right? The six figure income professional and the other for the rest of us, working class, hourly wage, poor, working, poor, working middle class people trying to make it. He was bold enough to say that in front of them. And so for the business class to be upset with Brandon, that says to me Brandon is the right person to fight for people, families, making sure that we get equal wages. Joan, we saw how these businesses behaved during the pandemic. I saw how they treated teachers and how they treated health care workers. Despicable. I almost don't have any respect for business people. However, I know I can't place all of them in that category. They fought the CARES Act, Joan, but look at what the CARES Act does. It gives them, I think, $26,000, I think, per employee, I think, if they were adversely affected by the pandemic. So, So they get some benefit out of the CARES Act, but they don't want to admit it. Chicago business owners... Uh, have been uh, complicit in the demise and the disinvestment in the South and and West Sides, whether it's due to white flight, disinvestment, uh, years under ROM and just years under daily. So the business community, uh, and once again, I'm not painting a broad stroke, but so many of the powerful business people, we've seen how they fought Pritzker and just trying to get a fair tax. Mm Mm-hmm. They don't want to do anything, Joan, but receive a tax cut. We cannot survive with that model, Joan. 
even when they proposed raising the, the, the wages in Chicago, I clearly, vividly remember, business people didn't come to the table and say, look, okay, how is this feasible? How can we try to make this work? What can be done? What can we do? They immediately put forth an aggressive campaign to say no. City can't do it. Businesses will go away. Businesses won't want to stay. So businesses want, want to make money, have CEOs make um, just extraordinary uh, salaries, and have the rest of the employees fight for benefits, fight for a living wage, fight for time off when they're sick. Joan, something is wrong with the business community. I'm saying here in Chicago because I'm familiar with it, but also all over this country. Yeah. And no well, we are, um, you know, especially when you look at the way things work in other countries. I mean, I, you know, in Finland, I read where if you have a baby, you get nine months off your job paid, nine months paid off your job to bond with your infant. And, you know, you know, and then people say, well, you know, but the tax rates are high. But when you add up all the benefits they get that we pay for out of pocket, even if our tax rates were through the roof, we would still be financially ahead. Um, and the other point that you made at the very beginning that uh, Paul Vallis, I, I haven't seen a demogra- demographic breakdown, but your point that he has uh, support of the white community that is going to be not enough for the first time ever in this mayoral election. The city of Chicago is populated by more black and brown people than white people. So, you know, even if he got every white vote that was out there, that might not end up being the amount of votes that he needs. And as far as my assumption that he's going to make it into the runoff, mm-hmm. he right now he has, by some estimates, I was, did I read this in Crane's Chicago Biz? I don't remember the Tribune. Um, he's in the vicinity of like 35%. And then Lori Lightfoot, Congressman Garcia, and Brandon Johnson, they're hovering right around 20%. And then there's usually, by most estimates, say 20% undecided. So the now, chances of so so that's why people are saying, you know, who is it that's going to go up against Paul Vallis? Because unless something goes terribly awry in the next couple of days, he seems to have enough support to put him over the edge into the runoff. That's based on that's based on the polls that have been taken. Is that right? A, a lot of them. It's a it's a summary of a lot of um, because of every candidate will give you a poll, Pam, that shows they're number one. Well, my poll says I'm number one. Well, you know, good for you. God love you. Uh, but when you look at the there are partisan polls and there are polls that are done by independent people. But um, everybody shows Vallis making a very strong showing. And, you know, what's interesting and I probably should get to break, but I want to continue this conversation with you a little longer. Look at what happened in New York City. They elected Eric Adams, um, a very conservative Democrat. And the the parallels that are being drawn is when Eric Adams was running for mayor of New York City, 
the same sort of issues were front and center. People were really worried about crime. They wanted a, a mayor who they felt would be tougher on crime, would would make them feel safer. And there were there were much more progressive middle of the road candidates running against him. And he won. And some people are saying, well, look what happened in New York. You know, maybe the same thing is happening in Chicago. So there's a lot of factors at work. Well, Joe, I know a little bit about Eric's background. He had a history of coming through NAN, which is a national action uh, network with Reverend Sharpton. So he was given him the benefit of the doubt that he would incorporate some of that uh, understanding about crime and dealing with crime. Uh, Paul Vallis, uh, I don't think, has that leeway. And lastly, Joan, I'll just say, uh, black and brown people, we're the least polled people in this country. Mm. So... You know, when they talk about polls, we're the least polled people. So um, it is my dear hope that uh, balance is not uh, between one and two, because balance has done a lot of harm to Chicago public schools and black students. And I see that the media really doesn't want to cover that in detail. And uh, they have their reasons and they have their candidate, you know. So, but uh, I'm saying the voters go out and vote, vote now, vote on election day, and let our, you know, power. And our voice be heard. I mean, mm-hmm. that's what it's going to come down to. Uh, yeah. Are we going to go out and vote and support our candidates? And I'm just really supporting um, Commissioner Brandon Johnson because I think he'll be fair to all people. And he'll bring equity to those who just haven't had any for years, years and years, Joan. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you for the conversation. And before I uh, toss to break... I told you we have a 30-second ad that Congressman Garcia has uh, been running. I, um, In the interest of fairness, I want to give him his 30 seconds to get his message out. So listen to this. Growing up, we didn't have much, but we believed in hard work and the American dream. I'm Chuy Garcia. Right now in Chicago, that dream for a better future is out of reach and crime is rising. I've spent my life fighting for working people, pushing progressive values with Harold Washington, taking on the Chicago machine, leading a nonprofit focused on community violence prevention. And now I'm running for mayor because we need a safer, stronger Chicago for every neighborhood. Chuy Garcia, um, will he squeeze into the runoff? We will know, if not Tuesday night, by March 14th, when all of the mail-in ballots are counted. We're going to take a break. Be back with more calls right after this. Hey, where's Hal Sparks? I'm not sure where he is now, but I know where you can find him Saturdays at 11. He'll be right here on WCPT 820 for the Hal Sparks radio program, Mega Worldwide. This is WCPT 820 where facts matter. Now back to Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. We're talking uh, the news and politics of the day at uh, 3.30. I'm going to be joined by Professor Joel Ostro, and we are going to be talking about Ukraine. want to get uh, a couple more callers in real quick. Let's go to Dennis, who's calling in from Chicago. Go ahead, Dennis. Uh, hi, Joan. Uh, good afternoon. I really enjoy your show. Thank uh, you. My question has to do. Uh, yeah, uh, you, you guys are awesome. Uh, my question has to do with. Um, I know. Uh, I know you had Paul Vallis uh, on your show for for a pretty long time. 
Mm-hmm. And I, I know he had, uh, you know, uh, lots of opinions and everything. Um, I'm wondering, though, uh, I mean, did, did you know before, you know, before kind of uh, bringing him on your show, did you know that he was running for uh, mayor? And no, no, this was like this was long before anybody. As a matter of fact, we stopped doing a regular conversation long before he even declared his candidacy. Because at the station, we considered who might be running. And, you know, his while he certainly wasn't in the race at that point, he seemed a likely possibility. And to make sure that our segments weren't considered endorsements, we stopped doing our segments long before he ever announced for mayor. Uh, okay, I, I just wanted to ask. Yeah, uh, yeah, because I remember he was like a fixture on the show. And he, yeah. Yeah, we used to talk about lead pipes a lot. We got <laughs> we got kind of stuck on that issue uh, a lot. But yeah, no, no, um, we definitely um, long before he declared for mayor, uh, we didn't even know for sure he was going to declare for mayor. We just thought, you know, that his name was one that was being bandied about, and in an abundance of caution, we uh, we we stopped doing those segments. But thanks for giving me a chance to clarify that, Dennis. I appreciate the call. Okay, one more quick call. Uh, a different Ron calling in from Chicago. Hey, Ron. Hey, yo, real quick. The worst candidate in, for me is Brandon Johnson. And I make two quick points. Brandon Johnson said, well, I'm going to look for waste in the police department. Will you look for waste in the Chicago public schools? You had a lady, and I believe her name was Pam and Blaine and mm-hmm. you know, y'all, it's a it's a it's a narrative that everybody has left the city because of crime. Right behind it, guess what? It's taxes. See, we don't want to talk about taxes. And his solution to every problem is taxes. I don't know where people have this idea that we're all big and, 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 and nothing real quick. Business people. Most of their workers are uh, represented by unions. So it's a negotiation between them and what they're wages. Conversely, public unions are the, probably the worst thing that has happened to us because the elected officials give them benefits. And guess who pays for that? Taxpayers. See, that base is drying up. So, no, uh, I, I still, I was going to stick, I'm going to stick with the mayor, but if anyway, if it's between Brandon and um, Vallis, at least I think, I think I can save my home. I don't think I'll just be out Texas and then I'm a senior citizen now. He is the absolute worst. Every answer he has is increased tax. I don't know what's smart about that, but thank you. Mm. Well, thank you for that. I think that's a really interesting perspective and one worth sharing, and I'm glad you called to uh, say that today. We uh, have to cut this call a little bit shorter than I otherwise would have because uh, we need to get to a break, and then we're switching gears. We're going to get Professor Ostro here, and we are going to talk about Ukraine, where it is now, where it's going, where it's been. This is the one-year anniversary of the Russian invasion today. We'll be back with more after this. Take Jonas Esposito, live, local, and progressive with you on the go by using the TuneIn app on your phone. Just search for WCPT 820. Jonas Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT Willow Springs is powered by ComEd. See how ComEd is preparing for a clean energy future at comed.com slash clean energy. 
Now back to Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. It was February 24th, 2022, when Russian troops and tanks rolled into Ukraine, starting an offensive and invasion that is still going on one year later. By all accounts, Vladimir Putin thought that in a couple of weeks, that's what his advisor said, in a couple of weeks, you'll be in the capital. Everyone will capitulate. Easy peasy. Blitzkrieg. Hasn't turned out that way. But uh, Vladimir Putin, by all accounts, getting ready for another offensive to try to take more territory in the country of Ukraine. Professor Joel Ostro from Benedictine University has joined us many times to talk about what's going on. He's an expert on Russia, which gives him a really interesting perspective on what is going on in this in this war, in this conflict. And he joins us now to mark this day and to talk about what is going on. Joel, thank you again for being here. Oh, thank you for having me, Joan, and, and thank you for the attention you you give to this really important international issue, right? You know, I have, um, there were other things that I, well, there are lots of things that I want to talk to you about, but I was um, really struck. I think it was at uh, 3 o'clock, the Associated Press News had some story, and I, I don't know if, if it's a big story or just, you know, something that happened they're mentioning in passing, that, you know, there's been a big United Nations meeting and all these all these different world organizations, when they get together, you know, they talk about Ukraine. There's been a vote on condemning the war, et cetera, and so forth. Mm-hmm. Um, but China apparently made this big statement that there should be a ceasefire in Ukraine and that everybody should just go to the table and start talking. The AP was reporting that you know, President Zelensky is sort of tepidly positive about the idea. Um, did that surprise you? Where's that coming from? No, it doesn't surprise me at all. Uh, China uh, is neither allied with Russia nor with the U.S., uh, but China does have enormous interest in uh, repairing its economic relations with the United States and Europe uh, while maintaining uh, its strategic relationship with Russia. So it's trying to navigate this middle ground. It's a ex- perfectly familiar position for China. It's one that China held throughout the entirety of the Cold War, trying to navigate that uh, third path, uh, neither aligned with the Soviets nor with the democratic West. And it uh, played that role with much skill in the 70s and in the 80s, and uh, in particular, uh, and is trying to do so again. Now, its call for a ceasefire is a non-starter, largely because the aggressor, Russia, has no interest in a ceasefire. And uh, as long as Russia is occupying Ukrainian territory and Ukraine is finding some success in repelling those Russian troops, uh, really Ukraine doesn't have much of an incentive either. Uh, And uh, so it's really a non-starter. And and China's by no means the first. You might remember a few months ago, uh, Indonesia made the same kind of a call. I think at one point India did as well. Um, so, yeah, the whole world wants this war to end because it's uh, it, it's an infringement upon uh, 
the free economic trade that that all wish to have a return to in the wake of COVID, uh, the global economy very much needs that. Certainly the major corporate interests uh, are being harmed. Uh, and, uh, and China certainly uh, uh, wishes for some kind of normalization of its, of its role in all respects and is working hard to try to achieve that. What kind of relationship is there right now between Russia and China? Um, it's, it's mostly a strategic, strategic one. Uh, there was uh, cooperation and, and trade and natural resources uh, China exported to Russia's market, but China, China's trying to avoid getting hit with uh, sanctions of its own for violating the, the global sanctions on Russia, um, and and it is unlikely to do anything that would risk uh, further marginalization of itself. Uh, yet they share the the longest border in the world uh, and have many overlapping interests, uh, both historic and and current. So you think this call by China for a ceasefire and to come to the negotiating table, what it's it's posturing that it's that it's it's not a it's not a statement. It's not an an effort that Vladimir Putin would pay attention to or take seriously. I honestly think it's more of a signal to the U.S. and the West that's saying, look, we're 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 playing neutral. We're trying to be neutral. We're not taking sides. We're not going to help the Russian cause. Uh, but they're not actively helping Ukraine either. Uh, and they simply want an end to this. Uh, and, and that, for the reasons I outlined, is certainly a, we should take as a genuine, a genuine position. It's, it's not, not contrived at all. Uh, I think, you know, you just also mentioned India. Is India trying to uh, traverse these waters and just not make anybody mad? Because I know when this U.N. vote was taken, India didn't didn't vote. They abstained. I believe they abstained. Yeah. 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 Same role. And for the same reasons, uh, largely the same reasons. Uh, India has more of a nationalist leadership right now and and had been sort of nuzzling up closer to Russia over the years, but uh, also uh, is certainly not uh, in a position to to want to lend any legitimacy to this invasion either. Uh, so I think they would also like to not do anything to rattle their connections with Russia and the Russian market, but also preserve its standing with the West. And when this vote was taken, like, oh, you know, we think war is a bad thing, I I don't know a whole lot about the country of Mali, but they must obviously be uh, getting a lot of supplies or something from Russia because they voted against military it. military supplies. Uh, Russia's got uh, the Wagner Group uh, is very active in West Africa and and uses Mali as a base uh, uh, to counter American interests and efforts there. Uh, and uh, so, yeah, Mali, Mali's action is is in part because of its continuing uh, reliance on on Russia for uh, to combat internal uh, opposition, um, foreign incursions. They have a number of security concerns, and, and Russia is their strategic partner. So that was not a surprising vote. This one-year anniversary has refocused the rest of the world, like the United Nations and the Security Council, 
uh, on the G7. Uh, it has refocused attention, at least for a window of time, back on Ukraine. And the the large part of these participants are condemning it. They are, you know, making sure that everybody knows that they support Ukraine, that they think this is that what's going on is bad. Does that add to the pressure on Vladimir Putin or is it meaningless? I think you said the G7. Well, every in the last year, every group, Mm -hmm. Davos, G7, um, you know, the Organization of American States, everybody who's gotten together seemingly has taken a vote to, you know, show our support with Ukraine. We stand with Ukraine. I know I've I've seen so many of them. There have to be at least a dozen of these different meetings that have that have, you know, we're here to talk about medicine. Yes, but we stand with Mm -hmm. Ukraine. Mm -hmm. Good. Good for you. Mm-hmm. Uh, does that kind uh, of world um, pressure, does it mean anything? Is it actually turning into pressure on Vladimir Putin, or is it just uh, shrugging it, it off? It certainly means a lot to Ukraine, and it has resulted in tangible support. And every time it happens, Zelensky has been masterful in making sure that those proclamations translate to tangible support. Uh, whether economic or military or humanitarian, otherwise, uh, and and so that by helping Ukraine, you're thwarting Russia in some sense, and um, and it, it serves to buttress and signal that that the attempt to apply punishing economic sanctions uh, is also not not wavering. Um, sanctions always throughout history. Uh, have um, never have the degree of effect that that those imposing the sanctions wish, whether it was Iran in the 70s and 80s, uh, Iraq in the 80s and 90s and 2000s, um, South Africa before that. Um, uh, There are always uh, bad actors uh, pursuing self-interest who seek ways around sanctions. And today we see that in many of the countries have already named, like China, uh, Indonesia and India, but also Turkey, Hungary. Uh, so there are many who, for a variety of different reasons, depending on which state we're talking about, will uh, will violate uh, those international sanctions. And, and that has the effect of undermining the impact uh, we wish to see. So Russia's economy overall has not taken uh, as big a hit as, as we would have hoped. Uh, Probably the major reason for that uh, is uh, the continued uh, position of Switzerland, which they claim is neutrality. Uh, but as was the case in the 1930s, neutrality ends up being taking sides. Uh, and so the failure to be able to seize or freeze assets of the absolute wealthiest of the Russian uh, economic officials uh, we call them oligarchs, and of indeed of Putin himself and his family. Uh, much of those assets are in Switzerland, and they still have access to those, and that goes to undermine uh, the ability of those sanctions to really hit hard. Uh, and yet all of those proclamations by those organizations puts more pressure on those sorts uh, to, to be careful uh, and to reexamine their policies. Uh, and one can just only hope each time that, that it leads to more pressure on Russia. We are talking to political science professor uh, Joel Ostro. He's an expert 
and Russia. <clears throat> we're going to take a break. And while we're in the break, I want Professor Ostro to get inside Putin's head and walk around a little bit and give us his uh, appraisal of that when we come right back after this. Stay on top of the latest news in and around Chicago with Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Every weekday afternoon from 2 to 5 p.m. on WCPT 820. You're listening to WCPT 820 because facts matter. Don't turn that dial. A dangerous mistake to make. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, returns right now on WCPT 820. Benedictine University political science professor Joel Ostro is an expert on Russia. He has studied it. He has been to the country. And uh, before we went to a break, I asked him to get inside Vladimir Putin's head and then give us a live report from there. So tell us what we need to know about this guy, Joel. Joan, I thought we were friends. The last time I told you, (laughs) friends don't ask friends to climb inside of Putin's head. Uh, (laughs) This is not a happy place to be. Um, Okay. So... For a whole variety of reasons, faulty intelligence, corrupt uh, military uh, and military industrial officials and practices. Uh, Putin thought that uh, could roll into Ukraine and and take it over and destroy the Ukrainian people uh, in a matter of weeks uh, and that they would be greeted with open arms. Uh, we had a president once who thought that was going to happen in another country. Uh Mm-hmm. And clearly, it has not gone that way. However, uh, Russia occupies 20% of Ukraine's territory right now. Uh, and right now, uh, I'm doing something that I thought I would never do, uh, but I'm referencing uh, John Bolton, former U.S. He went under the Trump administration. But he was right on something earlier today. Uh, Russia does not see itself as losing or having lost. Uh, and that messaging is a little bit odd from our president and, and other advisors. Russia has doubled its territorial holdings in Ukraine, meaning double the amount of territory it occupies. Uh, the government doesn't need to, and clearly Putin doesn't care about the number of dead and wounded, uh, because the population doesn't seem to care about the number of dead and wounded, including Russian dead and wounded. Uh, what Dissent or opposition may have existed at some point in Russia, has either been forced into exile, arrested, uh, or uh, forced to, quote-unquote, suicide out of tall buildings. Mm. Um, There is no challenge to Putin at any level of Russian society that has any meaning right now. Uh, And to me, that means support. Russia supports this war. Russia is gaining territory. And losses don't matter, meaning human losses. Human life doesn't matter uh, to Putin. So um, perhaps frustrated in the amount of resources that have to be exhausted, uh, but the West's opposition helps him to to build on his misinformation and disinformation uh, that the West is out to destroy Russia. 
Um, because the West is out to help Ukraine to defeat Russia's desires in Ukraine. So he can manipulate that message for his domestic audience and whip up the nationalism and patriotism inside of Russia. Um, using but, but, but I have a question about that. We've talked about that before, attacks. about, um, you know, he's making this argument that it's really uh, U.S. aggression. But clearly the people of Russia can look around and say, well, where are the U.S. troops if that's the case, you know, they're certainly not on our soil. And, oh, gosh, look, they're not on Ukrainian soil either. I mean, is it just the fact that he manipulates what they know and what they hear and what they read so thoroughly that they don't have a clue? And for a, a century and a half, Russia's leaders have been crying Western encirclement. The West is trying to destroy us. It's an old message like so many of Putin's messages to the Russian population are. Um, and by having closed off any opportunity for alternate analysis or, or alternate uh, sources of information, uh, uh, the population um, has become hypnotized. And uh, let's not forget that a very similar thing can be said for about 43% of our own population, uh, hmm. hypnotized into believing that uh, that somehow the election was stolen from Trump in 2020, uh, that COVID uh, was a hoax, uh, well, hell, that climate change is a hoax, uh, that vaccines are harmful. Um, and it's about 43% of our own population. So uh, for anyone who wonders how the Russian people could believe that things are otherwise, uh, Take a look at our own society. Uh, and granted, uh, a lot of uh, that hypnosis here among the 43% or so of our population is a result of active Russian disinformation campaigns uh, that people like Tucker Carlson, whether knowingly or unknowingly, uh, echo and, and spread. Uh, but, but the fact remains that the American people are as susceptible to this as, as Russians or anyone else. Humans are humans, uh, same as Germans in the 1930s. I'm going to take a little tiny Tucker Carlson tangent here, because, of course, Uh-oh. in the um, lawsuit that is uh, progressing against Fox, where uh, Dominion is um, just going after them for over a billion dollars, saying that they did, you know, they they hurt their business by claiming the voting machines were rigged or um, are inaccurate. And now there's a reveals of all these private communications that on the same days they were going out and spreading these uh, election denier claims in personal private conversations, they were saying the exact opposite. They were saying that they that, you know, one of them said, well, sooner or later, he's just going to have to admit that, it, you know, we all know. But then they go on the air and say the exact opposite of of that. So clearly there is a corporate mandate. I mean, Sean, Hanna, maybe one of them could do it out of the blue, but you got Carlson, you got Ingram, you got Hannity. And I think uh, Brian Kilmeade. So there's clearly a corporate influence here. Clearly, Rupert Murdoch is supporting this because, you know, all of these people aren't going to tell the same lies at the same time unless there is some organization, unless they are being instructed to. It was a story, but I don't think it got anywhere near the attention it should talk about disinformation 
I mean, if you're a if you're a Fox viewer and you're reading, well, yeah, while they were telling me that Donald Trump's right, the election was stolen and privately they're going, this guy's nuts. When is he going to wake up and smell the coffee? I mean, I don't understand how you hold those two. What what kind of cognitive dissonance is going on here? Well, it's no more news. There, there are no more reporters or news anchors uh, than are those in, in Russia today, uh, uh, regardless of what they know, um, whether those interests are corporate or influence uh, or power uh, or fame uh, uh, or combined with negative threats of, of uh, potential uh, imprisonment or 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 worse, uh, as is often the case in Russia, if you don't do the uh, authorities' bidding, uh, disinformation is disinformation, uh, and uh, the spreading of it is is never for the purpose of the disinformation itself. Somebody, those, the, those who are spreading it, are benefiting, and it's not all. You know, in this country, more often than not, it's money. Uh, in Russia, it, it, there are often other uh, interests, but, but money is also there as well. Uh, it, but it, it works a little differently. Your opportunity to make money goes away if you do not adhere to uh, the disinformation uh, when the Kremlin wants wants that spread. Uh, so that's how the Russian media works. Uh, and that's how uh, the misunderstandings of, of the nature of Ukrainian culture and society and politics uh, became so widespread in Russia. Uh, it's how um, the lies about uh, what was happening on the ground have continued to spread uh, in Russia. Uh, and, and I don't see any sign of change on that order because all of those who know how to do the job of journalism have either been silenced or left. Mm. I'm speaking to Benedictine University Professor Joel Ostro. We are talking about Ukraine and Russia. Uh, we, we will get back on track after we come back from this break. But I wanted to let you know that we are reopening the phone lines. If you want to talk about Ukraine, if you have a question for the professor, um, please give us a call. 773-763-9278. That number again, 773 763 9278. If you've never called in before and uh, don't have a pencil handy, think of it this way. 773-763-WCPT. You can call in on that line and you can also text me on that line. I will uh, get those texts on my computer and I see, Professor, we're already getting some text questions. Okay. Uh, we will, um, one of our, one of our texters, I'll give you a little, I'll give you a little heads up, Joel, so you can start thinking about this while we uh, break for news. One of the texters wants you to talk about Georgia. And I don't think they mean the state that's above Florida. So we are going to continue this discussion. It is the one year anniversary of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. We'll be right back after this. Did you know you can text Joan at the same number you used to call us? 773-763-9278. Thanks to our texting sponsor, Camp Kupugani. Register today at MulticulturalCamp.com. Text away. 773-763-9278. 
This hour of Joan Esposito Live Local and Progressive is brought to you by Team Hochberg. If you want to buy a house or refinance a house, call 855-56-DAVID or visit 56david.com. Joan Esposito, Live Local and Progressive on WCPT 820. We are going to uh, get to your texts and your calls in just a couple of minutes. But um, before we went to break, I asked Professor Joel Ostro, political science professor from Benedictine University and an expert on Russia. I asked him to get inside Vladimir Putin's head and walk around and tell us uh, what he saw there. Um, I know that you've said repeatedly that Putin really doesn't care about the body count uh, it seems he is very comfortable with genocide. Would you agree? Mm-hmm. So this whole campaign against Ukraine uh, is a campaign of genocide. And uh, I know we are in the Chicago area and um, there is uh, among many people a, a natural resistance to, uh, to hearing or using that word, uh, which I share. Uh, I teach a course on genocide, and not all bad things are genocide. Uh, but genocide is genocide. Uh, and genocide does not mean uh, the effort by Germans to destroy European Jews in concentration camps and gas chambers in the 1930s and 40s. Uh, the uh, Genocide Convention, technically called the Convention on the Prevention and Punishment of Genocide, uh, was certainly uh, written and adopted uh, in the UN in the wake of the Holocaust. But the definition, which I will read to you now, is uh, any of the following acts committed with the intent to destroy in whole or in part uh, a national, ethnical, racial, or religious group. Uh, usually now people say the attempt to destroy, the intent to destroy in whole or in part a people as such. And note its intent is the crime. The crime is a mm-hmm. thought and idea. Those actions, uh, killing members of the group, causing serious bodily or mental harm to members of the group, deliberately inflicting on the group conditions of life calculated to bring about its physical destruction in whole or in part, the destruction of apartment buildings, hospitals, schools, and uh, systematic widespread rape uh, is what that refers to, imposing measures intended to prevent births within the group, uh, and the final one, forcibly transferring children of the group to another group. Uh, Russia has committed all of those as part of its strategy, as part of its tactics. I'm sorry, as part of its tactics. Its strategy, and this is the core piece in Putin's mind when it comes to Ukraine, that there is no such thing as Ukraine. And more important, the genocidal part, there's no such thing as Ukrainian. He rejects and denies the existence of Ukrainian as such. Uh, The language he sees as fake. Uh, the culture he sees as fake. The religion he sees as fake, he sees them as Russian. And those who are not Russian uh, and refuse to be, uh, they don't get to live. Uh, and that is what this war is about for Putin. Eliminating Ukraine is a thing. So uh, genocide. So to end and everything involved in it and all who participate in it and all who lead it are committing genocide every bit as much as Bosnian Serbs in uh, the 1990s, in the early part, every bit as much as those Rwandan leaders uh, who organized uh, people to turn machetes against their fellow countrymen and women, uh, every bit as much as 
the Germans who shuttled and, and forced uh, millions of Jews into gas chambers. Uh, and you know, one thing in the 30s. that I have not uh, a, a story you just touched on that I haven't really spent a lot of time focusing on uh, are the recent stories that have come to light about mm-hmm. children, Ukrainian children being moved to Russia. Tell my audience about that. Yeah, and this was reported from the very early days, uh, the very earliest days of the invasion, uh, in the areas where uh, Russia already occupied in the parts of the Donbass region. Uh, Donetsk uh, is a larger province that includes Donbass and, and Luhansk, uh, and Russia now occupies much of most of both of those areas. Uh, so the whole of the Donetsk region, uh, they began uh, rounding up children and moving them first to Siberia uh, or deeper into the Russian-held territories, but mostly kidnapping them and taking them to Russia. Um, and uh, more often than not, uh, killing their parents uh, in the process, um, or more accurately, and, and sorry for the imagery, uh, raping and then killing their parents in the process. Um, there's a project out of Yale, uh, which is an absurdly complex and detailed project to identify specific children and verify that they were kidnapped. Uh, and they have been able, through uh, witnesses, witness reports and other documentation, to identify 6,000 children who have been relocated. Uh, but... Be wary of that number. That's strictly than those that they're able to name and have multiple confirmations of those people having been removed through eyewitnesses um, or participants themselves if, if they were captured Russian soldiers who were involved in the kidnapping. Ukraine uh, reports some 15,000 uh, confirmed, meaning they know that 15,000 uh, children have been abducted and, and removed from their homes by Russians. Uh, but the Institute for the, uh, the Institute for the Study of War, uh, no, no, the Institute for World of World Politics, I'm sorry, the Institute of World Politics, which is a graduate school uh, in the United States whose faculty number uh, almost all former intelligence community, NSA, CIA, and Defense Intelligence Agency officials, uh, also some from State Department or FBI, those who were involved in international justice issues, um, uh, a very competent and specialized research faculty. They uh, report that up to 200,000 children uh, may already have been uh, kidnapped and moved to Russia. Um, And this is for uh, to be raised as Russians and, and to erase their Ukrainian heritage and identity. So this isn't just uh, simply to strike to terror. Believe, but, but all of this is hard to believe. It is It is beyond hard to believe. And when you were describing this, I thought, well, you know, the Russians, the Russian military, they like to do things, um, the double tap, where they'll, you know, send a missile into an apartment building, and then would they wait till all the first responders are on the scene, and then they send another missile to take out the people who are there helping. And it's a way to strike terror into the population, which, you know, stealing children would seem to fall into that same category. But what you describe is almost more monstrous than that. 
You know, they don't want to simply, you know, strike terror into the hearts of Ukrainians. They want to take these children and brainwash them. It's a country that I studied uh, and a place where I lived for on and off for many years. Uh, Russia is not a terrorist state. Russia is a genocidal state. Uh, And that is the reality of it now. Uh, And if anyone's wondering uh, why Vice President uh, Harris a couple weeks ago called uh, specifically for international uh, criminal court proceedings and and branding Russia, she did. Uh, It's the uh, former uh, attorney general in her. uh, And um, and and although uh, in our own domestic politics, I've not always been the biggest fan of hers. Uh, I thought that was a, a, a bold, courageous, and, and honest and, and much-needed step, and I hope she will follow up and, and continue to uh, to push that because um, uh, too few people are. Uh, and this crime, with these, these are children who the odds of them ever finding their way back home or to their parents is infinitesimally small, one would think. And one thing that you that you touched on is that these children are stolen after their parents are killed, almost often raped and killed. And in in this sense, while certainly they are raping women, I've also been reading accounts where they rape both parents. Correct. Correct. Yeah. And, And rape and war have gone hand in hand since the rise of humanity. Uh, but systematic rape of this sort, uh, by a major global power in the 21st century. Um, again, there are there are innumerable crimes uh, committed up and down the chain of command, uh, from the very apex of power in the Kremlin all the way on down uh, to field commanders. Uh, we don't tend to to like to hold rank and file soldiers uh, as accountable for the crimes they commit, but certainly they're commanding officers who encourage or tolerate or turn the other cheek um, should all be held accountable. Uh, and and one can only hope that that day of reckoning comes soon, but it needs to come. Uh, and uh, and the world needs to commit uh, to that um, because, because these crimes cannot go unpunished. Now, when I first started reading about this, it was in conjunction with the fact that uh, Putin was recruiting a lot of prisoners, especially the worst of the worst, you know, being promised that if they survived the war in Ukraine, that they would go unpunished. And and it, it seemed like at least initially, it seemed like a lot of the really horrific violence was coming from this crew. But what no. you're saying is something much larger and much more state sanctioned. Is that correct? Those Bucha crimes that we heard about last summer, that was before the Wagner group uh, became heavily involved. That was before uh, this this recruiting of prisoners, which was largely under uh, Prigozhin's uh, mercenary army known as the Wagner group. Um, uh, most of those, uh, that prisoner recruitment was uh, his idea and, and, and recruiting for their militia, but Putin is... Uh, has clearly uh, soured on on both Prigozhin and the Wagner Group, um, and has re-emphasized the Russian army. Uh, there are rumors of a new wave of uh, conscriptions coming, uh, and uh, the prison rec- the prisoner recruitment is now uh, directed towards buffeting uh, Russian army troops, not not the mercenary troops. It's still happening. 
uh, and there's going to be another wave of it. We will hear about it soon in the next in, in the coming weeks, I'm sure. Well, that was one of the heaviest segments I've ever done on the radio. Uh, let's take a break. We do have callers. We have texters. We want to get your questions to the professor. We'll be back right after this. Can't listen to Joan Esposito? Surely you can't be serious. Live, local, and progressive in your car today? I am serious, and don't call me sure. Don't fret. You can still listen to her on the TuneIn app on both your phone and computer. Whoa! You feel that right away. Oh. It's just refreshing. Chicago's Progressive Talk. WCPT 820, where facts matter. This is Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. Benedictine University political science professor Joel Ostro joins me today on the one-year anniversary of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. We have opened up the phone and text lines. Uh, Let's go to the phone lines. Ron is calling in from Michigan. Ron, go ahead. You're on with me and uh, Professor Joel. Thank you, Joan and Professor. Professor, there's no statute of limitation on war crimes that I I, I, I believe. And uh, so I'm a Vietnam veteran. I want to see before we go uh, uh, talking about war crimes for Ukraine and Russia. And I do agree that Russia is brutal and they're, they're, they're due for war crimes after this conflict if it ends without a nuclear uh, obliteration. Okay. So we, we have to go on war crimes trial for Vietnam. What we did in Vietnam is 10,000 times worse than what, what's going on in Ukraine. And um, the, I'm not saying that there wasn't bad behavior in Vietnam, but I don't think what we saw in Vietnam is on the same scale as what we are now seeing in Ukraine. What do you think about that, Professor? So we're absolutely... Uh, Massacres of civilians. Um, there were uh, bombings. I think the use that the, the use of defoliants, uh, Agent Orange, uh, were certainly attacks on civilian areas uh, and decimated those areas. Um, I am and U.S. Not, soldiers uh, and U.S. soldiers. Yeah, yeah, that's what uh, we're talking about. I'm not unsympathetic to the point. Um, but for for my part, I go back to the intent, um, and I think it is quite a stretch to say that the intent of the United States of America and its military was uh, to destroy the Vietnamese people as such. It wasn't a war against the ethnic group. Um, that doesn't make uh, those um, horrific instances like Malay, uh any any less horrific, um, and it doesn't mean that that the commander is responsible or who allowed that and encouraged those kinds of things uh, shouldn't be held accountable. Uh, I think uh, Phil Caputo's um, rumor of war uh, makes that case uh, quite well and that distinction very well, uh, while also um, you know portraying and 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 outlining those horrors. Uh, what's going on in Ukraine, uh, the intentional destruction of hospitals, of apartment buildings, of schools, um, the mass and systematic uh, rape and, and deportation, see, kidnapping and deportation of children, um, all of these things are, are on a scale uh, and, and with a conscious intent uh, uh, 
that that really has not been seen um, by a major world power, um, you know, in 70 years. And here's here's the other thing uh, about Ron's argument. I'm it's just because something bad happened before doesn't discount the importance of the bad thing happening now. It's like, well, if this happened, then we have to, like, throw up our hands for Russia. Um, No, all those bad things should not happen. You know, it's it it's it doesn't excuse anybody. It uh, it doesn't uh, diminish anything about what's happening along those lines. Um, and right. you know, I people do that. It's like I don't know. It's like this whataboutism that has uh, mm-hmm. taken taken root. Well, yeah, you're saying this is bad, but you know, 30 years ago something bad happened too. Okay, all right. Well, I don't Great. want to dismiss what the caller said. He identified himself as as a Vietnam veteran. Um, and uh, uh, no, and I'm not dismissing correctly. what he said. There absolutely, no. absolutely Correct. were um, incidents, horrific incidents. But I, I don't believe I really don't believe that the it was what we see in Ukraine is government sanctioned. It is like done Correct. at the behest of Putin. It isn't Correct. rogue, bad actors or uh, a, a lieutenant commander who's just lost it and is leading his troops astray. I mean, this is it like a is plan the of the Russian military. Mm-hmm. One of our listeners, the Russian military. It's uh, Joel, one of our listeners uh, texted in. What is the actual possibility of the use of either chemical weapons or nuclear weapons in this conflict? I uh, still maintain uh, that it is exceedingly unlikely, uh, certainly not chemical weapons. That, that, that No one's even talked about that. Um, uh, and uh, <laughs> let us hope that that, that remains the case. Um, uh, and... Uh, uh, we've we've discussed this earlier um, when when the sort of nuclear saber rattling was happening. Uh, Ukraine managed to uh, carry out uh, a couple of ingenious and, and um, exquisitely targeted attacks on some Russian bomber planes uh, and air force uh, facilities that house nuclear weapons. Uh, that can carry nuclear weapons, nuclear materials. They destroyed planes and buildings without dis- without uh, destroying any of the nuclear materials at those bases. Uh, and that signaled quite clearly to Russia both the uh, ability to strike uh, deep into Russia's territory and military bases to know where nuclear facilities are located and demonstrated without doing it the capacity uh, to uh, cause the effect of dirty bombs there. This was back when Russia was was threatening, when the Zaporizhia nuclear plant was uh, threatened and and under attack and people worried that Russia was going to create a dirty bomb effect by deliberately uh, bombing that nuclear uh, power plant um, and other facilities. Uh, And and since that time, which coincided with the American CIA director meeting with his with his Russian uh, excuse me counterpart, um, also delivering the message uh, to uh, remove 
nuclear, whether bombs or dirty bombs or radioactive materials uh, from the conversation in any realistic sense. And um, that has largely been the case, and I expect that to hold. So you are not one of those people who sees this conflict as triggering World War Three. Not in not in that way. There there are always there are other uh, scenarios that could happen, but but right now those seem uh, entirely unlikely. So, well, that's good news. You know, we ended the last segment so down. It's nice that we could you know wrap before we go to this commercial break. We could uh, show a little hope at some point. <laughs> um, I'm talking to Professor Joel Oster. You know, speaking of hope. Do you still see this going another year? Uh, it's hard to put a timeline on it, Joan. Um, this next several months will look different from from the last several. Uh, there will continue to be shifts, but but uh, there's not not really an end in sight right now to the fighting because uh, Russia defines itself as as winning, and Ukraine defines itself as as not so much winning, but but pushing back and, and reclaiming territory and, and sees a prospect for reclaiming more. So this active uh, war is likely to go on for a while, um, but uh, for a variety of reasons that perhaps we should go into in the next segment, um, it, it, it's going to be ongoing tensions and hostilities between Russia and Ukraine uh, long into the future. Um, okay. Well, you just heard what we're going to be talking about in just a couple of minutes when we come back from this break. Take Jonas Esposito live, local, and progressive with you on the go by using the TuneIn app on your phone. Just search for WCPT 820. Jonas Pazito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT Willow Springs, is powered by ComEd. See how ComEd is preparing for a clean energy future at ComEd.com slash clean energy. Now back to Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. I'm talking with political science professor Joel Ostro from Benedictine University. He is an expert on Russia. We are having this discussion to mark the one-year anniversary of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Um, we, I was trying to get him to talk about what he sees coming down in the next few months or the next year, and uh, we had to take a break. Uh, Professor, um, pick if you if you can find that train of thought, <laughs> pick it up again, and let's go there. Yeah. Uh, so the West has and, and continues to supply Ukraine uh, with sufficient weapons to defend itself, um, and increasingly weapons uh, to reclaim its territory. Uh, and boy, I'm going to do this again, Joan. Uh, if I ever come on again and, and start to quote John Bolton, just disconnect me and, and say <laughs> that we've had a technical problem and have to move on to the next guest. Okay. Um, but on the question of you, Ukraine is asking now for F-16 or equivalent fighter planes, uh, and the reporting is that the Biden administration is hesitant that this would be a provocation. It would cause some kind of escalation or retaliation on Russia's part. (laughs) And Bolton said something really interesting, which was why this fear of sending more advanced weaponry where, and and I'm, this is a paraphrase, but almost a direct quote, 
where is this Russian army that supposedly would escalate and retaliate with some higher capability uh, fighting? And if those forces and those abilities, those capabilities existed, why the hell hasn't Russia deployed those to scare what is their primary interest taking over Ukraine? This is overly cautious and, and is, is really an indefensible argument. Uh, now, Bolton is very much a hawk on really everything. Uh, but in this case, he makes a pretty compelling point. You know, it's, it's funny it's that you say that, that because the case with tanks that, that this we is, will provide those more advanced weapons at some point. You soon. know, I'm somebody who uh, has only a passing knowledge of the news of the day when it comes to Ukraine and the military action. But it seems that we want Ukraine to win. It seems that way. At least that's what we say. And yet it seems that the weapons supplied to Ukraine <clears throat> are only sufficient to stave off Russian victory. They are not sufficient to overcome Russian forces and actually drive them out. Is that just because I don't know what I'm looking at or does it seem that way to you? Look, if we provide F-16s to Ukraine, uh, conceivably they could fly those and, you know, attack the Kremlin. We don't want them to do that because then, right, we can mm-hmm. be looking at World War III. Uh, so I get that. Uh, but Ukraine absolutely needs the weaponry to be able to str- – if our position is that all of Crimea and all of Donetsk is Ukrainian territory – then how are we not providing the weaponry for Ukraine to reach into all of that territory? And we are not providing uh, ammunition with sufficient range for Ukraine to hit targets across Crimea and across the Donetsk. That's the reality, and they need to be able to do that uh, to hit the ammunition depots and the supply lines to prevent Russia from amassing another uh, attack. Um, there's talk now about ramping up drone uh, production and weapons-grade drone production and providing those to Ukraine, uh, but really uh, uh, longer-range missiles uh, and, and uh, an ability to control the air uh, is going to be necessary. Um, it, it's really difficult to talk about victory and defeat. Um, everyone is losing in this. Uh, I guess the, the matter is, what is, what is Ukraine going to look like uh, when some future endpoint is reached? And it's still very unclear what that endpoint looks like. But right now, Ukraine's position is that all of Ukraine needs to be Ukraine. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the yeah. United States and the West are supporting that position until Ukraine decides that it can, that it either can or needs to uh, find a different solution. Uh, and I've maintained from the beginning it's for Ukraine to decide that, uh, and particularly given how well it's been able to repel Russia, uh, it ought proper properly to be Ukraine's to decide that. However, the long-range future is going to be one of hostility and tension and distrust. They share a long border, Russia and Ukraine do, no matter where that border ends up. Um, and you have two peoples, Ukrainian and Russian, who used to be very, very uh, close and, and enmeshed, uh, where now Ukraine, uh, it is hard to see how for 
generations, plural, will have anything but the gravest distrust and, yes, even hatred for uh, Russia and Russians. Um, and that uh, will leave things uh, quite the potential tinderbox. And, and it's a worry for the future, for sure. Let's uh, go to the phone lines. John is calling in from Niles, Michigan, uh, to say something about Ukraine. Go ahead, John. You're on with me and Hi. Professor Joel Ostro. Hi, Joel. Uh, Joan, I just have a quick question. I'm a student of history. In all wars, you, you can go through each one, uh, whether it's World War One, World, World War Two, the Korean War, Vietnam. They all grind down uh, each side that's engaged in those wars. And perhaps uh, the time isn't right now, but perhaps in uh, a few months, the if we often say all the generals and the media and the Politburo uh, a financial incentive in terms of uh, tens of millions of dollars for each of them, they might be more open to, and it would help their economy and their people, they might be more open to withdrawing from this uh, conflict. And uh, I, I see it as a win-win. Maybe the uh, Russia would even join uh, NATO at some point, and then that would help us deal with China. But uh, it just seems to me that you can catch more flies with honey than you can with vinegar. Hmm. Professor, you want to take that? Not if the fly hates honey. Yeah. Or not if the fly doesn't want any honey. You know, I mean, it's interest in any of that. That, Mm -hmm. that Putin has no interest in any of that. Uh, Putin's interest is in building up a a mini Russian empire uh, opposed to the West, Western values, Western processes, while still profiting uh, uh, from Western purchases of Russia's stuff, largely natural resources. Uh, but that, that last part is, is not even secondary. It's fourth or fifth priority. Uh, it's all about, uh, Russian nationalism, Russian patriotism, uh, and Russia as, uh, uh, as opponent to, uh, bulwark against, bulwark against the West, West's enemy. Uh, so that fly is not at all interested in honey. Yeah. Um, let's go back to the phone lines. We'll take one more call. Uh, Sal is calling in. Go ahead, Sal. Uh, yes. You know, I, I think the professor is right uh, about the genocidal nature of this war. And um, I have been really wondering about the mindset of Russians. And there is a channel on YouTube called 1420. That was the number of this guy's high school. He's a young guy. And he just goes around and he talks to Russians. He asks them a simple question and he goes all over into the countryside and in the cities. And it's really interesting. The variety of responses he gets, most Russians do support Putin and they clearly have been influenced by Russian propaganda. And they have several talking points that they all kind of regurgitate. One is that they are being attacked. Another is, is that we have to defend the motherland And then there are a couple that are dismaying to me as a citizen of my country. You know, they'll they'll say, well, the U.S. attacked um, Iraq and, you know, and Afghanistan. And then um, they'll say, you know, the U.S. doesn't have free elections. They're they're shooting each other over there, you know. (laughs) So our domestic uh, violence and stuff like that is used as a propaganda point by by the Kremlin. I'm a Democrat with a small D. And I I think that democracy is really the only hope for humanity. 
but anyway, these are, these are just some thoughts. No, you're right, sir. You're right. Um, and I, I used the word uh, hypnotized before. A uh, longtime colleague, very dear friend, and my co-author, uh, Georgi Sotarov, uh, he was Boris Yeltsin's chief political advisor for a number of years. Uh, before that, he was his political pollster, uh, ran a foundation uh, that in the 90s that did uh, political research, political polling. Um, and then around 2004, when I was there, went to a, 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 a small gathering of leaders of uh, liberal parties and um, activist groups, interest groups. There were about 30 people there. Um, and someone asked about Putin's popularity. This, again, was 2004. <coughs> and Yura's uh, response was, don't, and this is a, a, a right? His, his background was in political polling. And don't trust the results of polls uh, of a population that's been hypnotized. Uh, yeah. And so when you ask what do the Russian people really support, um, it, you have to answer that with a good deal of caution. Yes, they support Putin. They support the war. They are active. They go to the rallies uh, with the horrific symbols and, and the lies and the speeches, and they cheer them. Uh, but it's, it's what they know. <clears throat> and and what would they what would their position be if they had more complete information and access to alternative sources of information? Uh, one would hope and expect that, that that would be different. But I go back to what I said before in our own country, uh, our entire population has access to uh, alternate sources of information. And 43% believe that the last election was stolen, that COVID was a hoax, that the vaccines are dangerous and that climate change is not real. So um, um, we live in very strange times when it comes to information uh, and, and, we have access to more information than ever in history, and politicians have, uh, with, with, with bad intentions, uh, have an ability to manipulate us uh, by manipulating that information in ways that are truly frightening and that we are seeing being carried out in, in Ukraine um, in ways that, again, have not been seen in Europe for, um, you know, since the days of our grandparents and great-grandparents. It's It's... Sal, really thank you hard. for that that call. I appreciate it. Also, we just got a, a text from uh, Jeanette, who's texting from Wheaton. She said, I just saw servant of the people. What influence and control do Russian oligarchs have over Ukrainian government operations? Russian oligarchs? I know that I, I don't know if she meant, you know, do they are Russian oligarchs influencing the course of the war? Uh, so the question is is not as clear as I might have wished, uh, Jeanette. I'm a little confused. Yeah. Let's just say yeah, that's what she's talking about. Uh, well, I, I would say that... Or she's asking, are there Russian oligarchs who are, like, paying off Ukraine? I don't know. That could be the other way that well, question's Maidan, read, too. The Maidan uh, protests of 20... I think it was 2013, 2014. My Ukrainian friends listening, I'm sorry if I get the year wrong, um, was to uh, evict Russia's uh, sort of puppet regime, the Yanukovych regime, out of, uh, out of Ukraine, Um and, and and to reclaim Ukrainian independence. Um, ultimately, uh, that led to Zelensky's rise. 
uh, a few years ago, um, and and really a cleaning, uh, a beginning of the process of cleaning out of of the Russian influence from Kiev, uh, and and a lot of that effort led to a backlash uh, that um, you know got tied up in what became the Mueller investigation that did not lead to prosecutions, unfortunately, but clear meddling and interference in, in the election of 2016. Um, Zelensky then uh, carried out a pretty strong campaign to to try to clean up Ukraine's government, and that, that effort still continues, but, but Russia's influence has, uh, has, has really been minimized in terms of Ukraine's government. The extent to which the oligarchs are influential on the Russian side um, as long as they stay out of politics, uh, they can continue to do their, uh, you know, their their wealth accrual and their corrupt practices. Uh, it's more difficult for them to to engage in economic activity around the world because of the sanctions against so many of them, uh, and those who dare to speak out uh, against the war, uh, against Putin's uh, war, uh, find themselves. Uh, apparently jumping out, but I say that sarcastically, being pushed out of <laughs> yeah. uh, apartment buildings from very high floors, um, uh, along with their daughters and sons and spouses as well, in, in many, many instances. One uh, final text uh, that I'm text question that I'm going to hit you with before we uh, wrap this up. It's uh, this one is pretty straightforward. How is the war going to end? Uh, boy, if I knew the answer to that question, uh, I'd be a much wealthier man with a lot more power and influence than I have. Um, I still believe that um, one way or another, uh, Russia and Ukraine will not have normalized relations until not only Putin, but Putinism is gone. Uh, and there is regime change again in Russia. Uh, ultimately, for Ukraine and Ukraine's security, that's what matters. Uh, and and Ukraine will certainly not be secure as long as Putin's in power. Um, the result of the Minsk accords uh, from the 2014 Russian incursions into Donbass and Crimea demonstrate that. Uh, Russia had no intention of living according to those accords and violated them at a time and place of its choosing. Um, there can be no other uh, treaty or agreement with Putin's regime. Uh, and I would say that goes for the West as well, uh, that he is, um, uh, he is the leader of a genocidal state. Uh, and we cannot do business with that, nor should we. Uh, and that is, doesn't change even if he decides, okay, we're done. Uh, mm-hmm. That doesn't undo what has been done over the past 365 days and what's going to go on for the foreseeable future. Uh, so step one is regime change in Russia, and that step is uh, not in the foreseeable future. Yeah. Sorry to leave you on a happy note, Joan. Okay. All right. Well, you know, it's not it's not unexpected. It's, you know, what you're saying is not unexpected. It just doesn't seem that I, you know, we rack our brains trying to think what is the motivation? What is the carrot? What is the stick that could convince Vladimir Putin to take his toys and go home? And not only do I come up empty, but all of the observers and politicians and professors that I read They're coming up empty, too. So 
um, you know, you you're just telling us the truth. Um, that's and I think the bigger point is that, that even if you were suddenly for whatever reason to decide to pick up his toys and go home, that's not enough. As long as he's the one who's at home, uh, mm-hmm. the world is not safe. Ukraine's Ukraine's not safe. The world's not safe. Uh, and Russia is not a state that, that you can do business with or or should welcome into the, the community of, of nations in, in any um, in any viable or meaningful way. They need to remain isolated. Well, Joel, thank you so much. It is always a pleasure. I always feel just a touch smarter when we have our conversations. Uh, I thank you for sharing your expertise. <laughs> yeah, that's you know that's about as good as it gets for me. <laughs> Thank you so much. It is uh, it is our pleasure, uh, Professor Joel Ostro, P- professor of political science at Benedictine University, and did a lot of his um, professional work visiting and studying and writing about Russia. Uh, we are going to take a real quick break. I'm going to run through the election stuff again. So you know for sure what's happening. We're going to be back right after this. Need a new social media account to follow for progressive politics? WCPT 820 is your best source for both progressive politics and programming. Give us a like on Facebook and a follow on both Twitter and Instagram. Because facts matter. You're listening to WCPT 820. Attention, everyone. Don't turn that dial. Joan Esposito. Live, local, and progressive returns right now on WCPT 820. If you have not yet gotten out to vote, the ACLU wants you to know that you have rights. You know, early voting has started uh, Voting is going to continue through February 28th, which is this Tuesday. <clears throat> if you have a mail-in ballot and you've decided you'd rather vote in person, excuse me, that's fine. Bring the ballot with you when you come to vote. You have to give it to them. You can't have a mail-in ballot because they'll know, according to their records, that you've got one. You can't have a mail-in ballot and also vote in person. So bring the ballot with you and hand it over to the people working the election table. They know what to do with it, and then they will allow you to vote there at the polling place. And remember, in Illinois, we like people to vote. So you can register the same day you go to vote. You'll need some kind of ID some kind of uh, driver's license or some sort of state-sanctioned ID. You can go on the ACLU website or um, the election, various election websites if you don't have a driver's license to find out what kind of ID you can bring to register at the same time you vote. In most places on Tuesday, the polls will close at 7. You know, every once in a while there's a polling place for whatever technical reason doesn't open quite exactly on time, and those places are usually allowed to stay open. If they open 20 minutes late, they're allowed to stay open 20 minutes late. And if you are in line to vote at 7 o'clock when your polling place closes, everyone who is in line at that time is allowed to vote. Don't don't go home. Don't leave the line. Stay there. You will get an opportunity to vote. And then after you vote, I sure hope you join us 
7 p.m. to 10 p.m. this coming Tuesday night, the 28th. Patty Vasquez and Tita Jackson and I are going to be interviewing some of the uh, people that you want to hear from on election night. One of the people I'm hoping to talk to is Greg Hines, who has uh, an always an interesting perspective on uh, any election. Join us 7 to 10 Tuesday night. And, uh, you know, until then, try to find something to do this weekend, somebody to talk to, something to do, a meal to make. By the way, I did make lasagna last weekend. Um, find some joy somewhere. That's all. That's your assignment. That's your homework for the weekend. Until then, have a great weekend. Stay safe. Good night. Good night.